0: Uh, The book of Romans is a book that has great depth. It has all of the major tenets of the Christian faith. Paul elaborated on so much. And so if you want to get a good dose of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, the book of Romans is a good book to go through. And let me just say that if uh, this is our second week in Romans. We just covered the introduction last week, so we're in chapter 1 beginning around verse seven, verse eight tonight, that I would recommend you stick with it and uh, cover the whole book with us. Stay at it because there's so much here that if you could understand this book, you'll understand the heart of Paul, the heart of God, and some of, as I said, the great tenets, the great doctrines of the Christian faith are all spelled out. Paul went into great detail. I remember when I first saw the city of Rome. It's a place I'd always wanted to visit. I didn't spend much time there, but the few days that I was there, it was breathtaking. I'd read about it. I'd seen pictures in Bible encyclopedias, the little black and white cheesy pictures. I wanted to see the real thing. And I remember walking through the Forum and seeing the great Colosseum still intact, so much of it, and reading about it, all that happened there. And remembering that Paul was there and a great work, a church was established in Rome. It's hard for us to grasp, to imagine the sensation that would have filled the hearts of a first century person in just hearing the term Rome. It represented so much to them. It was the center of civilization. It was called the Eternal City by people that lived at that time. It was the center of peace. Some of you remember from your history that it was the Romans that established the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the first pervasive worldwide peace that brought relative stability to that part of the world at that time. Again, the center of civilization. Now Paul wanted to go there as well, but for different reasons. He didn't want to go to take pictures, or just to stay in a hotel and walk the streets and think of Roman fashion, But what was important to Paul on his heart is that Rome represented the center of influence. It was the capital of the world. It represented thus the center of influence. And one of the reasons I think Paul wrote so prolifically in this book, the treatise to the Romans, is that because the gospel penetrating Rome meant so much, in fact the theme of the book of Acts from Jerusalem to Rome. That's the theme of the book of Acts, how the gospel goes from the Middle East, Jerusalem, through Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, which would be Rome if you're living in Jerusalem at that time. But of course to the rest of the world it wasn't the uttermost parts of the earth, it was the center of the earth. To the Jew, Jerusalem was. To the secular world, Rome was the center of the earth. Now, as we mentioned last week, Paul had never visited Rome. he had only wanted to. We read in this letter that he longed many times to come to Rome. He's writing this from Corinth. A church has been established there, not by Paul the Apostle, but as we recall, probably by some of the three thousand converts on the day of Pentecost who were baptized, some Jewish Christians who made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem heard the gospel proclaimed by Peter, gave their lives to Christ, were baptized that day, went back to Rome, and a church not only was established, but a church was going great guns by the time this letter was written. We drew your attention last week to verses 16 and 17, which we shall do again at the beginning because it sets the theme of the book. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. What's the theme of the book? It is the righteousness of God that comes from the gospel of Christ. The gospel has within it God's righteousness, which is very different, as we'll see again tonight, from man's righteousness. That's the theme you basically either have God's righteousness or you have your own righteousness. If you reject his method of making you right with himself, you are only left with your own righteousness or self-righteousness. So from Paul's perspective, you are either self-righteous or God-righteous. And the distinction is made very plainly. But Let's go back to verse 7. After the introduction, he says, "...to all who are in Rome..." beloved of God. In other words, God loves each and every one of you believers in Rome deeply. Called saints. We mentioned last week the words to be are not in the original text. It's simply, you are called saints. And that's what you are. You are set apart for God. That's what a saint means. You are called saints, whether you're in Rome or Albuquerque or New York or California or even, yes, Texas. (laughs) You are called saints if you belong to God. And basically there's only two types of people, and that's saints and ain'ts. (laughs) You're either a saint, you belong to God, or you don't. And of course the goal of Paul the Apostle is to make an ain't into a saint. That's what gave him the passion to travel throughout the world, to share the gospel, to convert people to Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We sort of ended with that last week. Grace and peace called so often the Siamese twins of the New Testament, inseparable. You can't have peace without grace, and grace always produces peace. If you've experienced the grace of God in your life, the peace of God follows. And so that's his greeting, and it was a common greeting for Paul especially. What Paul does is he combines a common greeting that the Greeks used, with the common greetings that the Jews use, the Hebrews, and put them both together in the same phrase. The Greeks used to say, kairé, which was their, hello, what's up, kairé. It literally means rejoice. The Jews would commonly say, shalom, they still do, shalom, peace. Rejoice, Kyre, shalom, peace. In the Greek it's irene. That's he's, writing it in Greek, but he combines these two greetings and changes the word rejoice, (kyre) to a better word, "charis," grace. And so Paul takes a common form, changes it, sanctifies it, and really uh, he puts it, spelling out the gospel, grace and peace. Beautiful. The question that we left last week is, do you have peace? Have you experienced God's grace to the extent that you have peace? Now, it's important to sort of set this up because in chapter 5 he'll really develop this. He'll say, therefore, because we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Another way of saying grace and peace. We've been justified, freely given God's righteousness by faith. Therefore, we have peace with God. And we're going to see in Romans there's two types of peace. There's peace with God and then there's the peace of God and one should follow the other. You should be at rest tonight if you've experienced the grace of God, if you are at peace with God. If there's not a war between you and heaven, you should be at rest. And if you are not at rest tonight, it's because you're not understanding God's grace, you're not understanding the peace that is there, or something's blocking it. But peace is something that is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, joy, long-suffering, etc. It is to be ours who know Jesus Christ. There was once a woman who visited an elderly woman, a friend of hers, who was stricken with arthritis. And there she was sitting in her chair with her hands mangled from the disease, her body twisted. And the visitor said, do you suffer much? And the woman who had the arthritis cracked his smile and said, yes, but there's no nail here, pointing to her crumpled hand. He bore the nail, I have the piece. And then she pointed to her head, there's no crown here, he bore the crown and I have his piece. And she pointed to her side, there's no spear here, he took the spear, but I have his piece. In other words, this is what she said. The grace of God has been conveyed through Christ, and I have experienced His peace. Now after the introduction, which really ends in verse 7, beginning in verse 8, Paul gives evidence for his concern for the Romans. Four evidences for his concern. Verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. So this does prove, I guess, that Paul was Southern you all. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. One of the things that I have noticed about Paul's prayer life is that he thanked a lot. In every letter just about that I can recall of of Paul opening up. He's, I'm thankful for something, even in the, the, the letters where he's suffering the most. Sometimes if you really think you have it bad, read Philippians and realize that Paul wrote it when he was in the darkest dungeon in Rome. And he writes to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice, and he has things to thank God for. Paul's life was so filled with thanksgiving our lives should be filled with thanksgiving. Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Do you forget his benefits from time to time? Thanksgiving should be natural to the Christian. I know you might say, yeah, but it's a lot more fun to just complain. Yeah, I guess that's sort of human nature, isn't it? But it doesn't glorify God. In fact, not only does it not glorify God to complain, You are making a statement about his taking care of you. You're basically saying, you're not a very good shepherd. It's an insult to God, isn't it? To complain about our lot in life is to sort of give God a slap as far as his ability to care for us. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I thank God, he says, for all of you we often lose sight, and I conclude myself on this. We often get so overwhelmed with things in our lives, we lose sight of the goodness of God. And you know what? Even if something bad happens, that could be the goodness of God. There was a little boy who spent hours building a boat. Little boat. Wood sails, painted it up. I mean, it looked trick. Put it out on a lake. Little breeze came up took the sail, started going across the lake. He was just so excited, then a huge wind came up. And that little boat got caught by the wind, turned over and sank. All those hours wasted. And he looked up at the wind and he said, you know, it looks like a great day to fly a kite. (laughs) Good attitude. I'm thankful for this wind. I can make use out of it. So thankful was Paul. Now he notices, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the world, that is, the Roman world. What happened in Rome was unique in that an apostle was not sent out from Jerusalem. There was no commission, there was no demographics made of Rome. Let's see, this town would have this kind of a church, there's this kind of income, none of that nonsense. Not even Paul, not even John, not even James went to Rome. Just spontaneously a work of the Spirit was birthed in Rome, quite apart from any of the bigwigs in Jerusalem. And their fame was spreading throughout the Roman world. Secular history tells us that in Rome about this time there was quite a stir. In fact, in 49 A.D., the Emperor Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. Because, according to their records, some of the Jews were following the teachings of one named Crestus, which is a mispronunciation of the word Christ. It's a variant spelling, a mispronunciation, a misunderstanding. That some of these Jews were following this Crestus, which caused a dispute among them and the rest of the Jews in Rome. And so they were at each other's throats, and he kicked them all out. What really happened is that Jewish Christians who probably heard the gospel of Jerusalem came back and a Messianic movement happened in Rome where many of these Jews were following their Messiah. And it is, did create an uproar, created persecution by the Jews, by the Romans, but their faith was heard of throughout the world. Now I, I like the way it's put. The one thing that was noted about these Roman Christians was their faith. It wasn't their church building wasn't their size. Hey, we've heard you've really grown, and you're up to 230. That wasn't the issue. What was most important is their faith was growing in the midst of persecution. Verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Please notice that little phrase, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. That's the way I want to serve the Lord, in the spirit. It's possible to serve the Lord in your flesh as well as in your spirit. In fact, I think much ministry done in the name of Jesus Christ is done in the energy of the flesh. In the book of um, Isaiah. Uh, The first chapter, God, through the prophet, brings an indicting message against his own people, the Jews at Jerusalem. He says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of the offerings of rams and burnt offerings of of animals. I, I don't delight in the blood of bulls and goats and sheep any longer. When you spread out your hands and you have your festivals and your new moons and you sing your songs, I won't even listen to you. They were going through the motions, but it was done in the flesh. Their hearts weren't right with God. So it's possible to serve, quote unquote, serve the Lord without the right motivation. Some people serve the Lord because they want to be seen. It's a chance for people to notice them, to applaud them, them to get pats on the back, get their name up in lights perhaps. Rather than just, you know, I'm here to serve the Lord. I don't care what I do. I don't care if I'm noticed or not. I just want to serve. So I love that phrase. I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Now that's the second evidence that Paul had a concern for them. I thank God for you. And second, I pray for you. When I think of you, when you come to mind, I pray for you. I'm becoming more and more convinced that the best thing you could ever do for a person is to pray for them. Yet when I listen to the testimony of some, it sounds like a lot of Christians don't think it's the best. Uh, Listen next time when somebody says things like, well there's nothing left to do. I guess all we can do is pray. Hello. Wake up and smell the coffee. That's one of the best things and should be the first thing, not the last resort, the first resort. One of the best things you could do. One of the best gifts I ever received at Christmas time was a list of 52 groups of people in our church who promised they would pray for me every day for one week during that year. Yes, can't get any better than that. Now imagine Paul writing you a letter and saying, I, Paul the Apostle, am praying for you. What an honor that would be. What's interesting about that is he had not yet been to Rome, and yet he is praying not only for the Roman Christians but for the possibility of him going there. In other words, he's preparing his visit in advance by prayer. Think of the possibilities of that. What does your future hold? Who knows? God knows, of course, but you can prepare for your future right now in prayer. The day my son was born I began praying for his wife, <laughs> and I can't wait to meet her one day. think, oh you're the one I've been praying for for all these years. But the possibility, of, Lord prepare those two, whoever she is, she's probably perhaps not even born when he was born. Maybe you're single and you're wondering, will I ever get married? Why don't you pray, prepare. If it's the will of God, in the will of God, at the right time. And then he says in verse 10, making requests, If by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Oh, he wants to find a way to come to Rome, but he wants to make sure it's in the will of God. Was it? Yes. What was the will of God? A limousine ride to Rome? No. A prison ship, a grain fleet ship going from Alexandria, stopping at the coast of Israel, and taking him to Rome along with the grain. Oh yes, the will of God isn't always luxury. Sometimes it's an uproar in Jerusalem, two years of imprisonment at Caesarea, a couple of trials, an appeal to Caesar, and a prison ship to Rome. Hey, it was free. God cut his expenses, all expense paid trip to Rome. And when he was in Rome and he wrote to the Philippian church, he said, I want you guys to know something. All that has happened to me has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. Again, his attitude, rejoice, the gospel is being furthered. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me." Third evidence of his concern for the Roman Christians, he wanted to give them something. He wanted to serve them. I can't wait to see you, I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift. Now there's the heart of a minister. He wanted to serve rather than have people serve him. Instead of saying, now I'm going to come to Rome, and I want you to know I'm a very important person. When I get there, I would like certain things done for me. I'd like a nice big meal cooked for me in advance, finest accommodations, please. And he says, I'm, I'm coming to you because I want to give you something. Like Jesus, it was said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Paul said similar words to the Corinthians. He said, what I want is not your possessions but you. Speaks volumes to people. This last summer when we went to Scotland and had a pastor's conference, and uh, we gave the book How to Study Your Bible and Enjoy It to each of the pastors, gave them some pamphlets, gave them some tapes. One pastor said, what is this? This is free? He said, yeah, it's free. It's, these are tools for you to enjoy and use in your ministry. He said. Nobody's ever come and given us something free. Usually they charge for the conference. You come and pay your own expenses, and then you give us things. Sure. The Bible says, freely you have received, freely give. I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. I don't want anything from you. And so that was Paul's heart. Verse 12, he modifies that lest we think that he's the only one that has something to give. I love what he says. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. Think of it. Paul, the greatest theologian who ever lived, is ready to receive spiritual truth from these fledgling young Roman Christians. That's the mark of humility there. It's not just that I have something to impart to you, but you have something to impart to me as well. And I think there's a spiritual law sort of woven into that. That is, whenever you give, it is given back to you. Give and it shall be given to you, said Jesus. Running down, pressed down, running over, full measure shall men give into your bosom. You'll never lack anything. And I find that when I give out the word of God, I'm blessed by the Lord. God gives back to me. The Spirit of God enriches my life. So. I want to impart some spiritual gift, but I know that we'll have a mutual encouragement. That's the way, by the way, that we ought to approach people in the body of Christ. What could I give to you? How could I enhance your spiritual walk? You have heard, perhaps, of General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. There's a story that he stood between, uh, before Queen Victoria in England when he was visiting. And the queen looked down at him and said, what can I do for you? And he said, well, some men's passions is fame and other men have as their passion uh, money or glory. I have a passion only for souls. What can I do for you? He wanted to lead her to Christ. He didn't care about what she could do for him. And I think that's the attitude we should have when we approach the body of Christ. How can I be of service to you? How can I help you? Remember the words of JFK? Ask not, ask not what your country can do for you. Excuse me, I just sort of go into those voices. But I remember him saying that so so vividly. And I think that that should be the motto for the church. Don't just go on saying, what can you do for me? Hey, what can I do for you? That was Paul's heart. Verse 13, now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, That I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. And here's the purpose that he wanted to come. That I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Fourth evidence of his concern for the Romans. He was in debt to them. It's an interesting phrase. In fact, how many times have we read those words and wonder, what does he mean by that? I'm a debtor. Well, there's two ways you can go in debt. You could borrow money from someone, and when you borrow money from someone, you are in debt to them to pay it back to them. Or you could be given money for someone. Now, let's say I gave you a thousand dollars tonight. I just walked up to you and gave you a thousand dollars. Don't worry, it's not going to happen. So, (laughs) this is all hypothetical. And I, I say to you, this is for so and so. Make sure that you give it to them. At that point, if you agree to it, you are now in debt to that person to deliver what has been given to you. That's the idea of what Paul says here. We have been given freely salvation, and it's for all people. It's a message that could affect the entire world. We're a debtor to the world to make sure they at least hear it once, as much as we can to hear the gospel. Because that message of the gospel, transformation of their life, it could change their life forever. So I'm a debtor. And he mentions to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, and to the unwise. So as much as in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. The good news is for sharing, not for hoarding. I was reading recently in the book of Second Kings that great story about the four lepers at the gates of Samaria. This is what happened. There's a famine going on in Samaria back in Second Kings 7. And there's four lepers that are sitting out in front of the gate of Samaria. They're just sitting there. They have leprosy. They're going to die sooner than most. Now there's a famine throughout the land so they're going to, you know, die expediently. And one day they look at each other and they go, hey, why do we just sit here until we die? And the guy who said that, they probably all looked at him, the other three, and he said, listen, if we go inside the city of Samaria we're going to die because they're dying anyway. There's a famine inside as well as outside. So if we go inside the city, we're going to die. They're dying. If we sit here, we're going to die. I got an idea. Let's find the Syrians and let's surrender to them, our enemies. What's the worst that could happen? They could, they'd kill us. We're going to die anyway. It could be that they'll accept our surrender and we'll be their prisoners, but at least we'll be fed. They've got food. They have supplies. He said, good idea. Why do we sit here till we die? Let's go find the Syrians. Let's surrender. They went to the Syrian camp at twilight and they found that the Syrians had fled because the Bible says the Lord caused them to hear the sound of chariots and armies and horsemen and they thought, oh, we're being routed and they fled. So they left their tents, all their supplies. And so the lepers went inside one tent and they found food. They started eating. They found silver, gold, garments. They took it out and put it in a pile. They went into the next tent and started doing the same thing. You know, they're getting full by now. And one of them says, you know what? What we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news and yet we remain silent. We've got such good news. The famine is over. We've got supplies. Look at the whole camp of the Syrians it would be wrong for us to enjoy all these things and never tell anybody else that they could enjoy them as well. It's not good. It's a day of good news and yet we remain silent. We can never remain silent, can we? We have the good news, the gospel. It changes lives. That's why we're commissioned to tell the world, dying of famine spiritually, about what Jesus Christ has done for them. Now he does in that verse, sort of divide the world up. Notice what he says, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise and the unwise. If, if you were Jewish in those days, uh, remember I said there's two classes of people, saints and aints? Well according to the Jews in those days, that's sort of the same thing, but it was there's Jews and then there's everybody else. There's Jews and then there's Gentiles. And, and some of the radical Jews said that God created the Gentiles simply to kindle the fires of hell. That's their purpose for existence, is just to make hell a little bit hotter for the rest of them. If you were a Greek, you also divided the world in two, Greek versus barbarian, anybody who's not a Greek. So this would be common terminology to a Roman audience. I'm ready to preach the gospel. I don't care who you are, if you're wise and smart and you're learned, you're Greek or you're a barbarian, doesn't matter. The Greeks believed that the pinnacle of culture would be to be a Greek. Uh, They spoke the divine language, they said, it was the language of the gods. By the way, of all the languages I've ever looked at or studied, Greek is the most beautiful, most precise language of any language. It's, It's amazingly precise and fluid. It's beautiful. And they knew it and they thought it's the language of the gods, and the Greek philosophy was, was as divine as the language. To the Greek who is cultured and sophisticated, anybody who was non Hellenized, non Greek, was considered barbarian. Now, the word barbarian was a Greek term that's onomono po- poetic, which means the meaning is derived from the sound of it barbarian. To the Greek, Anybody who didn't speak Greek, they mimicked, they mocked them, said, oh, listen to their language. It's just bar, 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 bar. <laughs> and so the ono, monopoetic word, barbarian, they just sound like, it sounds gibberish. So what Paul is saying is, you know, the gospel's for everybody, sophisticated, highbrow versus the low person in the caste of society. The gospel's for everyone. I'm ready to preach the gospel wise, unwise. Greek, barbarian, doesn't matter. Why? Verse 16, he'll tell you why. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There have been times where I've really struggled with verse 16. He says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ." Now I know it's wrong to be ashamed, but I also know that at times, it's hard not to be ashamed. I remember the struggle I had as a young, brand new believer trying to share the gospel. I I felt like I just can't do this. This is just so hard to like walk up to somebody and just like talk to them. I don't even know them, especially to the unbeliever. I mean, think about it. The gospel to the unbeliever is unsophisticated, is ignorant, is repulsive. The idea that all men are sinners and need to be saved by one person and faith in him alone, turns most people off. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Now, there would be plenty of reasons to be intimidated going to Rome, the pinnacle of culture at that time a place where Christians are being persecuted who don't worship Caesar. And and I bet there were even times where Paul was tempted to be ashamed. Remember he even wrote to the Corinthians and says, I was with you in fear and trembling and much weakness. But at the same time, I know that the gospel has the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So, because it's so powerful, I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God, dunamis. We all want to get to a point, don't we, where the, we're not ashamed of the gospel? And and I bet we'd feel pretty good if we could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But you know what's even more amazing than you not being ashamed of Christ? Is that he's not ashamed of you. That's amazing. Right? Isn't that what Hebrews says? He is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Isn't that wonderful? There's a lot that he could be ashamed in me for. But he looks at me and goes, I'm not ashamed of you, you're my child, you're my brethren. And then it says it's the salvation of everyone who believes. It's important that you understand what salvation is. The Bible does use the term saved, Paul uses it some twenty times here in his writings. Saved, salvation, the basic idea means to be delivered, to be rescued from something. Now he's going to tell in just a little while. And in the next couple chapters, why salvation is important because beginning in verse, uh, couple verses, verse 21, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. So, people need to be saved. The Bible speaks of salvation at least in three different ways. Past tense, present tense, future tense. They're all true. You have been saved if you've come to Christ, past tense from the guilt of sin. You're washed clean. Secondly, you are being saved, present tense, from the grip of sin. That's called holiness, sanctification. It's a long process. It ends when you die and you awaken his likeness. Then you'll be satisfied. So that's a process. We're being saved from sin's power, but ultimately we'll be saved in the future from the wrath of sin that will be poured out at judgment time. Notice he also says, And I'm uncovering it carefully because it sort of sets up the whole book. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That's important because you're going to read it throughout the book. The Jew first, also the Greek. This is Paul's method. When he travels the world in the book of Acts, in his missionary journeys, what's the first place he goes? Synagogue always. Always. Doesn't go to the marketplace, finds if there's some Jews first, preaches the gospel to the Jews first, then to anyone else. Simply, there is this priority, a couple reasons, theologically and chronologically. Theologically, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the promises of the Messiah were for the nation of Israel. We're going to find that out in Romans 9, 10, 11. He develops that. And then chronologically, or historically you might say, the gospel began at Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. He saw the debt first of all to the Jewish people. The promise came to the Jews. The free gift was first of all for those who had the promised Messiah, the covenant. So we went to the synagogue first and then to the marketplace. For in it, verse 17, in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Where is that written? It's written in the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on what part of the country you're from, how you want to pronounce it. Habakkuk is that little minor prophet and uh, it's, a, it's an interesting book. Uh, this prophet is approached by God and God says, you know, Habakkuk, I'm going to do a work in your days that's just going to blow your mind. Now, I'm paraphrasing this, of course, and um, it's just going to blow you away. I'm going to do something that, you know, you wouldn't even imagine it. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise up a wicked nation, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, against Judah, my people, the Israelites, and they're going to be a punishing rod to chasten them to bring them back to me. I want them to come and be in covenant and in love with me again. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. Now, this drives Habakkuk nuts. God, how could you do that? Okay, we're wicked, granted, but they're like wicked to the max. Why would you like use them against us? And then the message comes to him: write this down, Habakkuk. Write this, make it plain, put it upon these tablets. The just shall live by his faith. Trust me in this. Trust me. The righteous will come through this. Okay, trust me in my promises. The just shall live by faith. So, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now this sets up the whole book of Romans. And this was the phrase that bothered Martin Luther when he was still a Catholic monk in the 1500s, and he wrestled with this. How to be righteous with God. God gives us a righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. Now I found, just so I could read it to you, something that Martin Luther's son wrote. His name was Dr. Paul Luther, concerning his father. In the year 1544, my dearest father, in the presence of us all, narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged that with great joy in that city, through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come to the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way. As he repeated his prayers on the Lateran staircase there in Rome, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind, the just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took as his chief foundation, this, of all of his doctrine." And this is what he used to withstand the entire world. The just shall live by faith. I don't have to repeat prayer after prayer, Hail Mary, Hail Mary, our Father, our Father, glory be, glory be, and the more I do and the more I bleed, the more righteous I become. No. I just have to place my trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ once and for all, and I'll be justified. That changed his whole world. And it, uh, It rocked a lot of people's worlds as well. But as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In other words, God will not accept your righteousness. If you say, you know, I'm not all that bad. I have a thing or two I'd like to tell God. I'd like to show him my record. All the things that I've done, I've worked really hard and I've believed really sincerely. Really? It might be good. It might be better than somebody else. But is it enough to get you in heaven? No. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Any takers? Anybody who can say, I'm perfect, without being a heretic? I doubt it. No. Well, what's plan B then? Plan B is we need an alien righteousness, something that comes from outside of us, given to us freely. The just shall live by faith, faith in Christ, His finished work. The prophet Isaiah declared, all of our righteousness are seen as filthy rags to God. It must be imputed. The just shall live by faith. Now we get to verse 18, and uh, I want to set this up quickly because beginning in verse 18, we step into a courtroom. Remember I gave you an overview of Romans last week? Divided into four sections. First of all, the wrath of God. He begins that here. He'll take that through to chapter 3, verse 20. That's the theme, the wrath of God, followed by the grace of God. Now, he's going to paint a real black, ugly picture of humanity. So black that anybody reading it is going to despair. And that's good. Because it's going to cause everybody, Jew, Gentile, to cry for God's grace, God's mercy. Oh, Lord, how can I be saved? Glad you asked. I can give it to you freely, not by your works, but by my finished work. And so then he'll start talking about the grace of God, then the plan of God, and then finally the will of God. Those are the four divisions we mentioned last week. So it's going to get dark, it's going to get ugly in these next few chapters, and it is simply a picture of the human race. That's all it is. It's an x-ray of the heart, you might say, as the truth about us is uncovered. Back in the 1920s, 1930s, there was a book written called A Guide to Understanding the Bible by Harry Emerson Fosdick, who said that man's concept of God has evolved for the better. He began by saying something like, um, Noah's God was angry, flew off the handle, uh, hated people, judged the world with a flood. Then there was Abraham's God. He was a bloodthirsty God. He demanded human sacrifice, told him to kill his only son. Uh, Then there was Moses' God, a little bit better, not angry at everyone, but enough to kill all the Egyptian firstborn and have plagues fall upon Egypt. And then uh, God spoke through the thunder and the lightning of Mount Sinai, a works-oriented God. Then we come to the time of David and God is improving, says Fosdick by now. He's improving according to David. David has a more wholesome concept of God. Um, Yet, David has the imprecatory Psalms where he calls the wrath of God down on his enemies, the enemies of Israel. So he says, still God is improving but he's not quite there yet. Then there's the prophets where God is viewed as somebody who is uh, angry at the inhumanity of man to his fellow man. So God is holding man into account for his own deeds. Then we come to the time of Jesus, says Fosdick where Jesus has a more wholesome view of God, a much improved view of God, the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, except, says Fosdick. The only problem with Jesus is he spoke so much about hell. He had this ancient idea of hell and he sort of ruined the whole thing. And so he, what he was saying is that God sort of changes over time. Now in his book, A Guide to Understanding the Bible, Fosdick sort of sums up, what is modernist philosophy. Modernist philosophy that says, how could a God of love ever judge the world? Paul's answer will be, if he doesn't judge the world, he has no love. For God to be loving, God must be just on wickedness. And I was having a conversation with a Muslim about this just the other day. And uh, why wouldn't God just accept everyone? He should just forgive everyone. I said, what about Hitler? Should he just go into heaven? What about people who uh, are are child molesters and have no chains, they just are serial killers? Just no problem, just come on in, just whimsically? Well no, that's wicked. Okay, well let's talk about what wickedness is. is. Is wickedness in the heart of everybody? And so we sort of uncovered layer by layer from the worst, blatantly the worst, to every single person. Now Paul will do that in a few chapters during this time. What he wants people to realize is that we need a savior. And to do that, you have to convince them that we're all sinners. Only sinners say, I need a savior. If It's I'm okay, you're okay. What's the point? Now, notice in verse 16 the phrase, the power of God. Look at verse 17, the righteousness of God. Now look at verse 18, the wrath of God. Now I know that people have problems with the wrath of God. And you know what? It would be nice. It would be really cool if we never had to mention the wrath of God. Wouldn't it be great? Just, let's just talk about flowers and <laughs> peace and love. That'd be great. we will just pat each other on the back and just pretend there's nothing bad. If I were to talk only about that and never talk about the wrath of God, that's one of the great things going through the Bible. You cover what the Bible says. But I would be an unfaithful messenger to you, just as if you had somebody that worked for the post office who didn't like to deliver bad messages. And so there was a postcard from a doctor that said, regret to inform you, you have cancer. We need to see you right away. Oh, I don't want to. You know, I I don't want. That's such a negative message. I hate for people to read that and they get so upset. Or I don't want to give a bill. This guy owes $3,000. I'm not going to give that to him. He's going to make it. Hey, he'll have a bad day. I'd rather just deliver all the messages that make people feel really warm inside and cuddly. He would be an unfaithful messenger. You have to give the whole truth, and Paul does that in this section. In verse 18 to verse 32, it's God's wrath against Gentile society, those who are blatantly in open idolatry and immorality. And uh, that's where he starts. Most of us will go, yeah, yeah, right on. And then we'll get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, where he speaks to the moralist, the person who would say, you know, I have a high standard of morality. I'm a sophisticated person. He'll speak to them. And then in chapter 2, verses 17 to chapter 3, verse 8, he speaks to the self-confident Jewish person who rests in the law that he says he keeps, but he doesn't keep it all. And then In chapter 3, verse 20 to verse, uh, 9 to verse 20, he speaks just basically to the whole human race and says, you know what? We're all without excuse. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all people, and thus we all need a Savior. A word about what that means, the wrath of God. There's two Greek words that he could have used. One is the Greek word thumos, which is a red hot anger, and it's usually a word reserved for men and women, humans. It's the kind that is uncontrolled. It's the kind that we have. We get our word thermos or thermometer from it. We reach a boiling point and then we crack. The second word, and it's the word that he used, is the word orge, which is a controlled disposition. It's not out of control. It's very much in control. It's a settled, controlled disposition toward based on certain things, and we'll see what they are. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Heavy sentence should send a chill through the spine of everyone here tonight who doesn't know God. It's a reality. There's only one thing that will abate the wrath of God. And that is Jesus Christ because he took the wrath of God on himself. His death on the cross was what the wrath of God did to his son so that you and I could be forgiven freely by his blood, by his grace. But there are those who suppress the truth. The word suppress means they know it, but they hold it down. They won't let it out. Sort of like the kid who snuck his puppy up into his room at night. But his dad told him he couldn't do it, but he snuck the puppy up in his room, and then he heard his parents coming up the stairs, so he put the puppy in the toy box, sat on the lid, and had this conversation with his parents. All the while the dog is pounding and scratching at the toy box trying to get out. He's sort of ignoring this whole thing. He's suppressing the instinct of the animal. People who at one time knew the truth but didn't deal with the truth the right way, moreover, negated the truth by their own unrighteous living and unbelief, are suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. We'll get to this probably much later on in Romans, later on meaning chapter (laughs) 2, chapter (laughs) 3. But um, those who suppress the truth, once you know the truth, you are now responsible for it. I am responsible for every truth I hear and every truth I know. That's heavy, isn't it? Too much is given, much is required. And yet the greatest curse within the church is hypocrisy. We have to be careful when we know the truth, when we're exposed to it, that by the power of the Spirit of God living in us we live out that truth. Now, At the same time, because there are hypocrites in the church, does not mean, nor does not negate the truth of the gospel. Now, a lot of unbelievers will say that. Well, there's so many hypocrites in the church, so you're not going to follow the truth because there are people who've heard the truth and aren't living right and they happen to go to church. That's right. Okay, uh, l- let's look at the banking industry. There are hypocrites within the banking industry. There are people who have embezzled money, they've been dishonest bankers. Does that mean two and two doesn't equal four? Well, Of course it does. Okay, so you can't throw out all of banking and all of accounting because of the misrepresentation of a few, right? Well, that's right. And so you're not going to withdraw all your money from the banks and put it under your bed? Well, of course. I mean. There There's some people with integrity. Well, of course, in the church there are those with integrity as well. And the truth that's been misrepresented doesn't cancel out the truth. So we have to be careful of that. Now look at verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. What is Paul saying? God has revealed adequate information to everybody on the face of the earth, irrespective of culture, language, and geography, simply by his creation. The psalmist would agree. Even though he never read the words of Paul the Apostle, David said in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Day and day, day and day, they utter speech, night and night, they utter their knowledge. There is no voice nor language where their voice is not heard. It's universal. Outside of Boston, Massachusetts, according to USA Today, NASA has constructed an 85 foot diameter dish aimed at space. It's like a big ear. It's capable of listening to 128,000 frequencies at once. It's the most serious study ever undertaken to find out if there's intelligent life out there. They're listening to the heavens. 128,000 frequencies they can interpret and decipher all at once. psalmist said, God, God is already speaking. You, you can set up your big ear. But you're not listening to God. God has been speaking through his creation all of this time that there's a glorious God. You know, if the artwork hung in the heavens is that awesome, what must the artist be like? That's the point. So men are without excuse. That is why a child of God should appreciate nature, I think, more than anybody else. You look at what God makes, look at the sunsets, especially out here. The mountains, the heavens, the stars, the splendor. And the visibility here is so great you can see forever, 80, 85 miles, sometimes you look at that and go, wow. We should be able to appreciate it so much more because, you know what, Dad did that. You know the one who did that. This is the work of the artist. And so, in like manner, these are invisible attributes clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. God constantly spoke, he still speaks, people misinterpret what they see around them. Um, I honestly don't know how somebody with an open mind and a basic scientific knowledge could come to the conclusion that the universe didn't have a beginning and won't have an ending. Uh, for instance, you look at the sun. It's 93 million miles away from the earth. Um, it's giving off radiation at the rate of about 2,400,000 tons of its mass per second. If it's giving off 2,400,000 tons of mass per second, and scientists tell us that it only recovers about one two hundredth of what it gives off, it means it's going to have an ending. Which means it had to have had a beginning. It's going to have an ending. It's, going to end. it's not going to be eternal. It'll have an ending one day. Robert Jastrow was the founder and the director of the Goddard Institute for NASA Space Research. And he wrote an interesting paragraph in one of his books called God and the Astronomers. Listen up. He said, "'For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries.'" Because they knew God, they didn't glorify him. They were not thankful. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Wish I had 30 more minutes. I don't. What we see in the closing verses of this chapter, and it easily segues into chapter 2, so we'll just pick up here and move on for next time, is a spiraling downward. Keep this in mind, because social scientists tell us we're spiraling upward. Social evolution, we're getting better and better. Paul goes, "Uh uh-uh. It's worse because at one time people were close enough in interpreting creation that they knew that there was a God, however ways, however they interpreted that. But now there's this spiraling downward. In seeking to push God out of their life, out of their national life, in trying to rule God out, now they don't become thankful for God's graciousness in their lives. So they add to their unbelief and their ignorance by not being thankful, by ingratitude. And it goes downward until he shows you the the final throes of society where God gives them over to their lusts and their debauchery. And as we'll finish off this chapter, it sounds like it's a modern newspaper. This is what happens to a society that pushes God away and, and why all of us, apart from Jesus Christ, there is no hope.